This evening, I'd like us to turn to John chapter 6, please. Um, Tonight, what I would like to do is to do a high-level survey through um, John 6. And then next week, next evening service, uh, we'll be doing uh, the Lord's Supper. And the communion meditation that we'll do will be from John 6 as well. Um, so some of my reasoning was I, I was planning to do that and I thought what would be good would for us to tonight have this large survey of John 6 and get a, get a sense of what Jesus is doing in this very important um, part of his ministry. So in the, in the Gospel of John, um, John 6 is a significant chapter. Um, it's a unit um, as we look at how John has structured uh, his gospel, it's, it's a unit should be seen together. And as you can see uh, in your Bibles, it's a large section of Scripture, 71 verses here. So John obviously saw this as a significant event. He wanted to give a particular attention uh, to, to what was happening here in Jesus' ministry and uh, what Jesus is doing and what he is saying. So John obviously sees this as significant. And as you read through the Gospel of John, he doesn't actually record many events. He records a few events in uh, a fair amount of detail and significant detail of Jesus' teaching. As we read across the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, one of the things um, that, as we compare them, one of the things that we observe is that there's only one miracle that's recorded in all four Gospels. And that's this miracle, the feeding of the 5,000. So this is a significant section in the Gospel of John. Uh, It would seem there's something significant about this particular miracle that each of the Gospel writers saw fit to include it in their narrative of the ministry and teachings of Jesus. If you look at John 6 and verse 4, um, there's a particular note. And uh, in fact, let me just read the first few verses. And we'll see the note that's made in verse 4. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now, as you read, it it seems to flow from verse 3 to verse 5. So let me just read 3 to 5. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. And lifting up his eyes then, and seeing that a loud crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said. And so verse 4 is a bit of an interruption. And um, the interruption is like a marker. We kind of trip over it. And John's put that there, so we trip over and go, well, this must be significant. What is significant? Verse 4, now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. So here's a significant marker. We find three Passovers in the ministry of Jesus. John records the first Passover in chapter 2. And at that point in Jesus' ministry, he declares, he says, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up again, speaking of his own body as being the temple. The final Passover, obviously at the point of his betrayal, his death and resurrection. So this here marks the middle Passover of Jesus' 
ministry. He says something profound. Um, he probably said many things that were profound. The, John records particularly something that he says the Passover, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it again. And so we come now to the second Passover and we ought not to be surprised that Jesus is doing something particular at the second Passover. He's going to be saying some particular things about his life and his ministry. So this middle Passover is a marker of significance. As we look at the passage, um, as we read through it, we see some strong Exodus kinds of themes coming through. Jesus is the better Moses. Um, the manna that came down to feed the people in the Exodus is, is, is in, the, in, the, um, in the mind of Jesus, and he's using that. And so there are these Exodus themes of manna and provision of food. And so um, we, we see um, a strong um, occurrence of, of themes. So the Passover... What is the Passover? The Passover is remembering the night before they departed out of Egypt, the beginning of the Exodus. And so this Passover, which remembers the beginning of the Exodus, Jesus is taking this point in time in the Jewish calendar to say some particular things about the Exodus and then, of course, say particular things about himself to which the Exodus pointed. So... Um, Moses um, is the one who led the people. Um, he's the one who spoke the words of God that were given to him. But here, of course, Jesus is the word of God, speaking the words of life. We also see a comparison between the grumblings of the people of Israel during the Exodus and the grumblings of the Jews and the condemnation that the the grumbling Israelites received in the desert and the condemnation that the grumbling Jews will receive from Jesus. The, the narrative as a whole can be broken down into four major parts. And I'm going to assume your Bibles do a pretty good job at, at kind of breaking down those major sections. In verses 1 through 15, we see Jesus doing this miracle of feeding the 5,000. Jesus distributes the bread this miracle of multiplying physical bread. Then in verses 16 through 21, Jesus walks on the water and he makes this statement, I am. Um, then verses 22 through 59, really the largest section in this chapter, we see Jesus proclaiming himself to be the true bread, the bread of life. And then in the last section, verses 60 through 71, we see Jesus has the words of life. So um, this is just a survey. I just want to kind of touch on some points throughout this to help, um, hopefully help orient you to, uh, to the passage and, and maybe encourage you to go through uh, sometime this week and read through the chapter um, afresh. So the first section there, verses 1 through 15, where Jesus distributes the bread. Um, as we read this narrative, I, I want you to keep in mind something. Um, I think we have a tendency when we read the scripture to read it something like this. Jesus was going about ministry and he looks up and he thinks, 
wow, there are all these people here. There's no food around. What should we do? Um, As we think about the intentionality of Jesus, that is certainly not what is happening here. Jesus didn't suddenly find himself in a fix and do a miracle to help the people. Rather, Jesus is deliberately planning an event. He knows the crowds are following him. And where does he lead them? He leads them out into the wilderness where there's no ready provision of food. He leads them into a place of needing food. And and so even this we see Jesus deliberately picturing in his earthly ministry something of the Exodus narrative. Jesus is leading the people, the Jews, into the wilderness where they will cry out or have a need of food and he will make provision for that need. Twice in this narrative, at the beginning and at the end, so verse 3 and verse 15, we see this mention. It's not a necessary statement to make. And so again, we go, why is John drawing this to our attention? Again, I think it's to draw our minds to this Exodus theme. Um, In verse 3, we read, Jesus went up on the mountain. And then down in verse 15, Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So, so there's this, this um, statement that's made that's not necessary. It's, it, it's, um, it's not merely a geographical reference of curiosity, but it's a statement of something, again, of Jesus' intentionality. He is leading the people into the wilderness, could have led them to a plain, could have led them to the place by the sea. He leads them into the wilderness to a mountain. And again, this this idea of Jesus leading the people to the mountain, doing a miracle at the mountain, teaching at the mountain, and then him going to the mountain to pray, are all again drawing drawing our minds to this Exodus theme. So the people are in need, and Jesus, with a provocative question, as it were, prods the disciples He wants the disciples to sense the extent of the need. He says, hey, they need some food. Um, Verse 5, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? You see Jesus provoking them. Disciples are going, oh, yeah, good question. What are we going to do about this? And so Jesus is provoking them. He wants to uh, excite in them the sense of the need of the situation. Why? Again, Jesus is being very intentional here because he wants the disciples to to pay attention to his ministry, the miracle he will do, and then the teaching that will follow. I'm guessing at this point, um, the disciples aren't thinking, hang on, Jesus is leading us into the wilderness up onto the mountain. This reminds us of the Exodus. I, I don't think in the moment the disciples were aware of what was happening. And as we read the Gospel of John, I'm not even sure they were really aware of what was happening at the end of the day. I think likely at the end of the ministry of Jesus in his ascension, the, the disciples reflect and go, oh, now it all comes together. We understood a few things of what he was saying, but now we see the larger context. And so John, the disciple of Christ, writing after the resurrection and ascension of Christ, writing under the inspiration of the Spirit, has the wisdom and perception to see all of the intentionality of Jesus and the significance of what he is doing here. Well, Jesus does a miracle. He tells the 5,000 men to sit down. 
and the other Gospels, we, say, we see specifically not including the women and children. So, I mean, how many people are here? 5,000 men, let's say women and children. Even if you just double that, that's at least 10,000 people. Five loaves and two fish, and Jesus makes provision. I wonder how he did this. We, we don't know how exactly the miracle happened. Did it happen as he was handing the food to the disciples? Or maybe as the disciples were then handing the food out to, uh, to, the, uh, to the groupings of people? You know, they'd break off some bread, go to the next crowd and go, oh, the bread's still there. We're not sure how it happened, but certainly they were distributing the bread to the people. Then they're all satisfied. It's not that their, their hunger pangs, the edge of the hunger pangs were taken off. But they were richly satisfied. They did, no one was asking for more food. Abundant provision, full satisfaction. And then Jesus sends the disciples out, verse 12, and when they had eaten their fill, he tells the disciples. Okay, so this is not just an interesting fact. The disciples, we don't want to leave garbage around here, so let's clean up the litter, right? Just like Jesus saying to them, Hey, how are you going to feed them? He says to them, I want you to go gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they go out and they gather and they fill up 12 baskets with uh, with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. You know, I read this, I'm curious, where did the baskets come from? You know, did Jesus say to them, hey, Fellas, before we head off in the wilderness, grab a basket each. I, I don't know. I, I can imagine Jesus might have done that. And the disciples are carrying around this empty basket into the wilderness going, What's, why, we, why did he tell us that? We, we don't know. But um, they gather 12 baskets up of leftovers. And um, the people recognize something amazing has happened. The way Jesus did this miracle... Um, very clearly communicated to the people that were gathered that uh, something amazing has happened. No one was in doubt that a sign had been done. Verse 14, when the people saw the sign that had been done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. They recognize it's a sign. And they're like, this is amazing. This is incredible. Um. We should make him king right now. Verse 15, perceiving that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king. So that's the people's response. Um, they, they think, this is the answer. This is the deliverer. You need, to, you need to be king. You need to be our rescuer. But we see very evidently that Jesus has different plans. He is not going to, as it were, play their game. He is not seeing things from their perspective. So he withdraws again to the mountain by himself. Here's a miracle. 5,000 men against one. They want to take him by force. And what's it say? He withdrew to the mountain. Again, there's this evidence of Jesus' power, his control, his authority. I'd love to have seen how that would have happened. But you can see the ferocity of the intentionality of the crowd, and we see, of course, the power and wisdom of Jesus. So this first section, um, John 1 through uh, John 6, 1 through 16. 
Then we move into verses 16 through 21, where Jesus walks on the water. Again, as we think about this, the, um, the way John is writing here, the, the significance of this, this narrative that John has given us, uh, we, we want to ask, what's happening here? It, as you read the narrative, verses 18 through 21 almost seem like an interruption. It doesn't seem quite connected to the whole bread of life, Jesus does the miracle with the bread, I'm the bread of life, the true bread. It doesn't seem very connected. And um, so, so I think we should wrestle with that and go, why did John include it? What's significant about this um, miracle? Again, I think we should read it in light of the Exodus theme. I think that that Exodus theme is so clear in this passage that this, I think, gives us some insight here into why John recorded it, firstly, but primarily and prominently, why Jesus decided to do this between the feeding of the 5,000 on the one day and the significant teaching that he was planning to do on the next day. Why would Jesus do this? Um. Well, I, th- I think as we think about it in light of the uh, Exodus theme here, what did Mo- Moses do? Moses led the people out of Egypt through the water. The waters parted. He held up his staff. The people went through on dry land. So this is a tremendous miracle of water um, that, that was performed before the people um, of Israel at the hand of the prophet Moses. The waters divided. Very impressive, we might say, water miracle. But here the waters don't divide. Instead, what do we see? Jesus sends a storm and he walks on the water and then delivers the disciples to land. There's a strange statement here at the end of verse 21. Then they were glad to take him into the boat and immediately the boat was at the land in which they were going. Now, some interpreters just say they were mostly across the lake. They see Jesus. They're struggling against the storm. They don't know how close to the shore they are. Jesus stills the storm when he gets into the boat. And then they go, oh, he went right at the land. That's pretty cool. But the way that John writes this, it seems to be also some element of miracle. That the immediately the boat is at land seems to convey something of the power of Jesus. So we see Jesus walking on the water and then when he gets into the boat and is calm, he delivers the disciples immediately to the land, to the other side of the water. So I think we should see this with through this uh, Exodus uh, motif, which I think elevates then what we see in verse 20. Jesus is revealing his divinity. Verse 20, they're frightened. And Jesus says to them, it is I, do not be afraid. Now, um, this statement, it is I, is an interesting statement. In, in the Greek, it could be just saying, it's I. Um, or, it could be the Greek clearly translating what you would read in the Old Testament when Yahweh appears to Moses and says, I am. So I just want to go to Exodus 3. Go to Exodus 3 verse 6 because I I think it's helpful to read it 
um, here in Exodus. Um, Exodus 3, in verse 6. Moses' attention is grabbed by a burning bush that's not consumed by the fire. Takes off his sandals. Yahweh says, take off your sandals because you're on holy ground. Verse 6. And he says, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face and he was afraid to look at God. Down in verse 14. And God says to Moses, or maybe we should read in verse 13. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask, what is his name? What shall I say to them? Verse 14, and God says to them, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. So back to John chapter 6. The disciples are frightened. And Jesus declares, Ego me, I am. Do not be afraid. I like what um, one commentator notes about those who would say, this is just a mere way of speaking. He says, nothing in this historical event is common. For Jesus speaks as he stands firmly atop a stirring sea. Jesus' words must be taken as anything but common. Standing where only God can stand, Jesus declares what only he can claim. So this miracle is a miracle where Jesus is manifesting his divinity to the disciples. In a, we might say, a profoundly traumatic experience. The storm, the surging of the sea, and Jesus appears, and they're frightened. And he declares, I am. Do not be afraid. He steps into the boat. The storm is stilled, and immediately they are at land. As we read this short section, verses 16 through 21, um, Psalm 107, it seems to me, is reverberating. Um, So turn to Psalm 107. I want to read beginning in verse 25. And I'm linking this this to this element of Jesus revealing his deity. Who is it who does this? Who stands on the water of the storm? Who has power to calm the storm? Who delivers people to the shore? So Psalm 107, verse 25. For he commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven. They went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wit's end. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still. The waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet. And he brought them to their desired haven. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. Let them extol him in the congregation of the people and praise him in the assembly of the elders. 
Go back to John 6 again. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. So, so I think John here is, is directing us. He's in light of the Old Testament in many places, in light of the Exodus theme, in light of Psalm 107, John's directing us. What's, what's the purpose of Jesus here? He is revealing his divinity to the disciples. And he wants to do this. He's doing this, the second Passover, and he's doing this particularly to the disciples as he's going to move from the miracle of, of um, multiplying the bread to teach them the symbolic significance of what Jesus did practically with bread, that they would move to learn to understand who Jesus actually is. So this, this I'm going to use the word traumatic, amazing experience, is deeply impactful to the disciples as they hear the teaching of Jesus um, in this next section. Let's just pause for a minute. If you had the experience of the disciples, incredible miracle during the night, horrible storm, horrific storm, they're filled with fear, they see Jesus walking, he says, I am, don't be afraid, he gets into the boat, it's suddenly calm, they're at the land, do you think you'd want to talk to people about that? Like, Like that... I don't think they slept, right? They, that, that would have really impacted them. And so I think we should read just the force of this event in the lives of the 12 as we head into this next section, which is verses 22 through 59, where Jesus proclaims himself to be the bread of life. Well, in this section, we see Jesus proclaiming himself to be the bread of life. We might say subtitle, the majority of the Jews proved to be having a heart of unbelief. They want an earthly deliverer like Moses to supply them with physical food and bring political freedom. But Jesus' instructions, Jesus' teaching confronts them, reveals, exposes their unbelief. And along with Jesus exposing their unbelief, he's also instructing his disciples. So verse 26, Jesus knows their true motivations. They're like, where'd you go? How'd you get here? What's the story? Jesus ignores their question, addresses their heart. Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. So the people had worked for the food that perishes. Where's Jesus? We don't know. Let's go find him. They're working at looking for Jesus. They're putting effort. They're pursuing. They're seeking him. They're working to find Jesus. And he addresses them and says, don't don't work, don't put effort in, don't give energy to seeking bread that perishes, but rather you should be giving your energy to be seeking something that sustains spiritual life, that gives eternal life. So down in verse 29, in response to that question, well, um, 
what must we do to be doing the works of God? Just tell us what to do. So as it were, um, just, just give us the hoops to jump through so that we can get God to do what we want him to do. What works do we need to perform to get what we want? Jesus responds in verse 29. This is the work of God. This is what you should be giving yourself to. What? That you believe in him whom he has sent. At which point they go, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. That's, that's, you're asking too much here. They push back. Verse 30. What sign do you do? Why, why are you so great that we may believe in you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Maybe in their cynicism, maybe in their unbelief, they're pushing back at Jesus and saying, well, hang on. Oh, we got some bread, but we didn't see the bread fall from heaven. Now, if we saw the bread fall from heaven, maybe we would believe in you. Maybe, maybe that's what they're, they're pushing against. But Jesus here exposes their failed logic. It wasn't Moses who performs the sign. They're placing too much emphasis on Moses, and they're minimizing the power of God, the, the work of God. So, so Jesus kind of implies here, he, it, he doesn't state it, but, he, but the, what the unstated um, implication of what Jesus says here is that Yahweh was the one who actually provided the manna. And since he was the one who provided manna, and Jesus did, just did this miracle yesterday, then he is to be seen as Yahweh. Notice what he says in verse 32. Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you bread from heaven, but my father, my father. He's linking himself to God here. Down in verse 33 then. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Jesus informs them here of the nature of the bread that matters. The bread of God. I just I want us to read this in light of Deuteronomy chapter 8. Because when we read the, the, the wording of Deuteronomy 8, I, I, I think we have um, a, a little more clarity in the grabbing the significance of what Jesus is saying here. So Deuteronomy 8 and verse 3. This is Moses writing at the end of their exodus. The, uh, so the, the end of the sojourn in the desert. Verse 3. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. See, what the Israelites were to learn was not to place their faith in the manna, but to place their faith in God who would provide the manna. They were to learn where their provision comes from, and they were to look to God who speaks. 
Now back in John, who is Jesus? The Logos, the Word of God. And he has come down from heaven and gives life. Just a, just a note here in this passage, this phrase comes down from heaven. Um, Jesus, John quotes Jesus saying this seven times in this narrative. That's a, that's a pointer that, that John's giving us. This is a significant element. This is a significant point of Jesus' teaching. Jesus has come down from heaven, the revelation of God to people. And so this leads Jesus to this declaration in verse 35. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall not thirst. This is the first of seven of Jesus' I am statements. I am the bread of life. I am the one, the bread who has come down from heaven. He says something here. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Is this declaration? If you trust in me, if you believe in me, there is certainty of what you will receive. You will never thirst. There is a guarantee. This is life eternal. Verse 40. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. Jesus here is he's speaking of the, the faith that the people have will bring eternal guaranteed fruit. You will have eternal life, and believing in me you will receive life. This life is an everlasting life, a life that never ends, and you can have confidence that at the last day you will be raised up by Jesus. Now, as I look at time, I'm, the time, I'm not going to have time to kind of develop the logic of Jesus in these verses, verses 37 through 40. But we read these and we wrestle with some of the statements being made. But the point of what Jesus is saying is that the electing, predestining work of God is the basis for the reason why believers can have confidence in eternal life. That's the logic here. So some people read it and kind of we go there as we're thinking about the theological system of salvation, and that's not wrong to, to go here and ask those questions. But to ask, why is Jesus saying this? Jesus is saying this is, do you want to have a guarantee of eternal life? Here's the basis of guarantee, that even at the beginning when you believed, it was all of God. And if it's because of God that you believe, you can have the guarantee that it will be because of God that you'll receive eternal life. The, the other implication here is it indicates that the unbelief of the Jews um, is rooted in the fact um, of God's work and says something about the heart of their unbelief. And it in no way diminishes God's power. It's not that God was impotent to save a group of people. Their unbelief says nothing about God's power to save in any way. Well, Jesus escalates the force of this truth as he responds to the grumbling Jews. Verse 41, they grumble because he says, I am the bread that came down from heaven. 
Verse 43, Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. See, here's a statement about one kind of father. Jesus says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. So there's one kind of people, the people who Jesus' Father draws But we see in this passage, there's another kind of father. Verse 49, your fathers, your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. So here's the contrast. If you're of the father of heaven, he will draw you and you will have eternal life. But if you're not believing, who's your father? Your father is like, the fathers back in Exodus who weren't believing. And what was the consequence? They died. And you will die likewise. So they died physically. But as we look at what Jesus is doing here, this death is a death in contrast to spiritual life, eternal life. So um, I want to jump now to this last section of, um, of John, down in the beginning in verse 60, where we see Jesus having the words of life. This the concluding section of this narrative. Um, Again, the Jews are complaining. They're grumbling. Verse 60. When many of the disciples heard it, they were saying, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, says to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? His implication. You're offended? about these things I've just said, about the Son of Man coming down from heaven, then how offended will you be when you see the Son of Man ascending to heaven? They would be outraged. They would be totally offended at such a declaration and revelation of Jesus' divinity. That's the level of their unbelief. So Jesus declares truth in a new way in verse 63. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life, but there are some of you who do not believe. Um, Here, as we look at what Jesus is doing here in the last set of this uh, section, we're seeing something of linking the themes throughout this section and the significance of the Father drawing and the unbelieving Jews being connected to their Father's who are unbelieving in the desert. Verse 63, it is the Spirit who gives life. It's the Spirit who gives life. And the flesh is of no help. So here, as we think about the thinking of the Father, what's the nature of a Father? You see, it's because of the Father's initiative that children are born. That's what makes a father a father. It's because of the Father's initiative. And in the Father's initiative, children are born. The birth of the child, as it were, gives testimony to the Father's initiative. He's the prior. He's the first. He's the one doing the acting. And so here, the Spirit of the Father is the one who gives life. Where does life come from? Life comes from the Father. He is the one who draws. He is the one who redeems. 
And so we see here the initiative of the Father and of the Spirit giving life. And if it's the Father who initiates and His Spirit who gives life, we can have the guarantee that we will certainly have eternal life. There is no doubt that at the last day, we will be raised to, e- to experience the full inheritance of eternal life. And what's the foundation of that confidence? The initiative of the Father drawing and His Spirit giving life. Verse 66. Many of the disciples turn back and no longer walk with Him. Jesus has accomplished one of His aims here. And one of those aims is to reveal the unbelief of many of the Jews. as clarified. But something else we see. Peter's declaration, verse 68. um, Jesus says to him, do you want to go away as well? Do you want to join these people? Here's what Simon Peter says. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Here's Peter's declaration of true belief. Why does Peter see this? Because the Father has drawn him and given him insight. So a few concluding comments here on John 6. Firstly, rejoice in Jesus, who is the bread of life, who gives life. He has given his flesh that the world may have life. Jesus has come down from heaven with the words of life that we may have life. Rejoice in the confidence that we can have that Jesus will raise us up on the last day. Sure, sure, it's a guarantee, it's a sure thing, no doubt. Why do we have that confidence? Because the Father has drawn us. And we, we've read, um, or maybe I didn't read that verse in an effort to be a survey. We see in this passage, uh, all that the Father gives to Jesus, Jesus will work in, they will come to Him, and Jesus will not lose one of them. We should treasure the words of Jesus through which we have eternal life. I have the words of eternal life. Do we treasure the words of Jesus? Do we delight in them as we should? And finally, we're to rejoice in the Spirit of Christ who gives us eternal life that we might call God our Father. Let's pray.